0: While you're finding your way to the book of Zechariah, chapter 3, I'd like to just share a couple of thank yous. First of all, thank you for praying for my wife and I, and uh, I'm glad my wife is here with me today, doing a little better, and uh, we appreciate continued prayer. God is good. We thank Him. Secondly, I just thank you for the privilege of being your pastor Today, I complete 37 years as your pastor. (laughs) The thank you is this way. And uh, how many of you are younger than 37? (laughs) So you weren't even born when I started. Now, I actually graduated from seminary and came down to assist my father and began preaching in this pulpit 49 years ago so i've actually been up here preaching off and on for 49 years now how many of you are younger than 49 (laughs) that's a long time that's almost half a century yikes but anyway praise the lord i thank the lord his mercies are new every morning amen amen praise god Well, we're coming back to Zechariah chapter 3. We got through the first half last week somehow. Thanks to your prayers, really, because I just was not feeling well. And I appreciated all the prayers, and thank you so much. I want to start with a couple of questions. Do you ever think about Israel? Hmm? Do you ever pray for the peace of Jerusalem In Genesis 12:3 the Lord told Abraham I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed But isn't God done with Israel? Didn't he judge them finally and completely in A.D. 70 and throw them out of the land? Yet what's going on today? They're back in the land and growing and thriving, but as a totally secular nation, not seeking their God. But what does God say? In Hebrews chapter 11, it begins like this. Paul writes, I ask then... Has God rejected his people? And his answer is, by no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. To foreknow means to put your love on beforehand. He loved them. Just like he loved us from all eternity. And then in verses 25 and 26, it says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. We are currently in the times of the Gentiles and ever since 586 BC, when the last ruling king of Israel, Judah, was taken out. But it adds here in Hebrews 11, then it says, in this way, all Israel will be saved. And then on in verse 29, it adds, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. In other words, God still has plans for Israel. Now we're going through these visions in the book of Zechariah. Zechariah had eight visions in one night. We finished the first three visions. In chapter four, we started the fourth vision. In the first three visions, it was really dealing more with externals the restoring of the people, the building of the city, the judgment on the enemies. But we started the fourth vision last week, and he's dealing with their internal spiritual life. They were a sinful nation, that's why they were sent into captivity. But in this vision, as we saw last week, God begins a transformation from ungodliness to godliness. As we saw the intercession of the angel of the Lord and then the imputation of righteousness upon Joshua the high priest representing the nation. So it began with the intercession and then the imputation. We have to remember these are visions There's a lot of symbolism that we need to understand. You have your thinking caps on, right? So that you can try to understand these things as we go over them. Dr. Feinberg said it now in verses 6 to 10. There is a transition from the symbolic act of cleansing in the first five verses to the application to the future king, priest, Messiah, none other, Then the Lord Jesus Christ, represented here as the angel of the Lord. In verses 6 and 7, we see God's relationship with Israel. Let me read the passage starting at verse 6 and read the rest of the chapter. It says, And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord, of hosts, the Lord of the mighty armies, the Lord of Sabaoth. If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Then he adds, Here now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you For they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Oh, what an amazing vision. (laughs) What an amazing vision. Having cleansed Joshua, taking off the filthy robes, clothing him with clean clothes, really picturing the robe of righteousness like we are clothed with, Now the angel of the Lord tells him his responsibilities. When the Lord transforms a life, he expects a change in the lifestyle. As we're going to see, that's important for us as well as for them. And so he's telling him what his responsibility as high priest is in leading Israel and worshiping God by living a holy life. Back in Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, it talks about Israel as being a whole kingdom of priests, because they were supposed to be ministering to the whole world, which they rejected. Again, in Deuteronomy chapter four, verses six to eight, Israel was to lead other nations to worship the one true God. One of the psalms gets it really right. Psalm 117, the shortest psalm. you want to memorize the whole chapter easily? There's two verses. And what does it say? Praise the Lord, what? All nations. Extol him, what? All peoples, not just Israel, but all nations and all peoples were to come and praise the Lord. But the priests in Israel were to be these leaders in worship. They were to be leading their kingdom of priests to worship the Lord and then others. You know, when we think of worship, sometimes we think of it as being just individuals, but not true. It's corporate. We come here corporately to worship together. Scripture says, Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. How I give praise to all of you that are just so regular every week. This is such a blessing. But you know, the priests failed. They sinned, they failed, and they were brought to their end. And that happened during that judgment in 586 B.C. We read about it in Second Kings 25, if you want to go back there just for a moment. Second Kings chapter 25. Sort of like the end of the story. It says, and the captain of the guard took Sariah, the chief priest. Did you know... Ch- Sariah, the chief priest, was the grandfather of Joshua, the high priest. It says, the captain of the guard, this is of the Babylonians, he took Sariah, the chief priest, he took Zephaniah, the second priest, and he took the three keepers of the threshold, and from the city he took an officer who had been in command of the men of war, and five men of the king's council who were found in the city, and the secretary of the commander of the army, who mustered the people of the land, and 60 men of the people of the land who were found in the city. And Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. Now, why did he bring all those particular people to Riblah? It says, And the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah. Those leaders, including the grandfather. Joshua the high priest was put to death at that time. They're failures. They were not serving God as they were supposed to. But as Paul Harvey might say, that's not the end of the story because God's promises are always true and faithful. And all the way back in Numbers chapter 25, he made a covenant with Phineas. If you want to turn back to Numbers chapter 25, just for a moment. In Numbers 25, beginning... At verse 10. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them. So I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to To his descendants after him, the covenant of a, what? Perpetual priesthood, not temporary. Because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. Ongoing, continuous. In the book of Ezekiel, the last several chapters talk about the millennial kingdom the new temple built, and the new ministry of the priests. But then it's going to be a commemorating ministry rather than an atoning ministry, but it's the ongoing ministry following the descendants of Zadok the priest. But now notice what the verse actually says here in 6 and 7. It says, the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua. He solemnly assured it, or testified to him. It's almost, uh, at the same time, a solemn warning to him. You need to be taking care of this. The angel of the Lord is reminding him that he is going to be held accountable for what he's been given. Worship is a serious responsibility. Just like, as someone said, when we as Christians are freed from Our sin, it's not to go live a sinful life. No, we're not saved in order to sin. We're saved in order not to sin. To be saved from our sins. And so here is a picture of the high priest being cleansed in the first five verses. And now God is saying, now you need to live the right way. Do the right thing. Two things here. Thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 7. If you'll walk in my ways, secondly, and keep my charge. Two things to do. First, walk in my ways. Life is a pathway. Life is a roadway. We are to walk along the way of life. But it's a life of living for the Lord. It's, a, it's to be a walk. If you were here last Sunday night, you heard the Sermon on Sanctification. The worthy walk. Over and over again. Not just Ephesians 4.1, but over and over again. It talks about having a worthy walk. Walking worthy of the Lord who has saved you. So believers today, just like Joshua the high priest there, are to live a life that is conformed to God, not to the world. And so it's not just for Joshua, it's for all leaders, and it's a standard then for all believers. If you'll walk in my ways. But the second thing, and keep my charge. This is your responsibility, Joshua. Joshua. Now in the past the priests always failed, but in the future millennium, there's going to be perfect obedience. Now remember, Josh was not saved here by doing the right things. He saved in order to do the right things. This is what our salvation is about. We're not saved by works that justify us, but we're saved to do works, which justifies us. And so there's going to be this perfect obedience. So he says, if you walk in my ways, and if you keep my charge, then something will be true of you. And here's what it is. Then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I'll give you the right of access among those who are standing here. What a blessing. You see the blessing of those things? First, if they're acting faithfully, leading the people in worship, doing what they're supposed to be doing, The Lord is telling him here, the angel of the Lord, you'll rule my house. Now, to rule here in the King James, it says to judge my house. Uh, The New American Standard, the NIV, say to govern my house. I mean, it's referring to giving judicial counsel and and making decisions for the Lord. This was the work of the priest back in Deuteronomy 17, 8 to 13. And as we read in Isaiah 2, all the nations are going to be coming to Jerusalem in the millennium to get this council. And so if you walk in my ways, if you keep my charge, you shall rule my house. And then secondly, you'll have charge of my courts. Now the courts is not the temple proper, but it's the area around the temple. It's the courtyard area. It's where Jesus did most of his teaching. And they will lead in worship. So this is perfectly fulfilled in the future millennium. One writer put it this way. Throughout Israel's history, the priests were sinful, failing to serve the Lord, at times acting with extreme wickedness, even rejecting the Lord for idols. And they deserved to be rejected by God because they truly were a priesthood with filthy garments, just like Joshua the high priest was. But the Lord did not negate his promises. Instead, he cleansed them as it was pictured there in the first five verses. And look at the final result here. And I'll give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Say, what in the world is that talking about? Well, you know what access is. You have a privilege of being in company with a certain group. This is something he says, I'll give it to you. It's a grant, it's of grace, it's not deserved. But the question is, well, who's standing here? Well, the angels were standing there. The angels were standing there, listening to the angel of the Lord and doing what he told them to do. And so this is really a right of access. The priests are going to move freely in the presence of the Lord and his angels during the millennium. What a blessed time. Now remember, it's all based on If you'll walk in my ways. If you'll walk in my ways. And if you'll keep my charge. Have intimate fellowship with the Lord. And isn't that what we're supposed to be enjoying right now as well? Do you realize someday we're going to gather With the priests in Jerusalem, and we're going to be worshiping the Lord, worshiping Yahweh with pure hearts, with unbridled affection. Oh, the joy of it all, what it's going to be like someday. And then we come to verses 8 to 10, and really what it's talking about is the future priest, king, Messiah. He's coming again. Right? He is coming again. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did on... Mother's Day when we sang "The King is coming," or we heard the verses saying, and we joined in the chorus. that was just such a beautiful time. The king is coming. Jesus is on his way. He's coming. He's already. We're looking forward to that. But notice what it says here. Zachariah's promises are going to assure Israel that God remembers His promises, and so he says, "Hear now, O Jacob, I mean, O Joshua, the high priest." You and your friends who sit before you, for they're men who are a sign. So the angel of the Lord is speaking. He's saying, "Listen carefully. Hear now." It means listen carefully. Something important is going to be told to you. You don't need to. You don't want to miss this. This is for you and for your friends who are sitting before you. Who's that? These aren't standing people. These are sitting people. Who's sitting with him? Well, apparently his fellow priests are sitting with him. So this is for you and your friends who sit before you, fellow priests in the ministry. He says, for they are men who are a sign. Now, that's a strange statement. They are men. They're not the angels here. They're men. And they're a sign. What's a sign? Another translation would say they are a wonder. Or another would say they're a wondrous sign. What is that talking about? Well, the term was used in the Old Testament. What a wondrous sign it was when God uh, smote the Red Sea and it opened up and parted for the Israelites to walk through. It was a wondrous sign from God. There were several times it mentions that with regard to the various great uh, plagues that came upon the Egyptians. Those are some historical examples, but there's also future examples, like when the promise was made to Hezekiah and God gave a sign about the future. But this scene then is portraying a future reality related to Christ's return the establishment of his earthly kingdom. Because here is Joshua. He's dressed in festal robes. He has a royal and priestly turban on his head. He is prefiguring the ultimate king priest, the Messiah. And the men sitting in front of him are a sign, a a wonder. They're prefiguring the day when Israel and its priests are going to be before Messiah. Messiah and be in humble submission to him. It's a picture of the future. This is what's happening in the future. Messiah is going to save and sanctify his people Israel, as he has promised and as it's foretold also in the book of uh, Romans chapter 11. Now notice he says, for behold, here's a reason, I'll bring my servant the branch. What in the world? What's that talking about? It's not in the ESV, but the word for should be there because he's giving an explanation. Israel's going to be cleansed because of the person and work of the Messiah. And what is he going to do as a result? For It says, behold, I'm going to bring my servant, the branch. Behold, pay attention again. I will bring my servant. Two, two titles for the Messiah. My servant and the branch. Now, my servant was used throughout the Old Testament. It spoke even of some of the other human beings. I mean, God called Abraham his servant, and Moses, and Caleb, and, and David. So it was a common term, but especially it was used of the Messiah. So like in Isaiah 42.1, he says, Behold my servant. And he's talking about the Messiah. And the same thing is true in Isaiah beginning at chapter 52, verse 13 and through chapter 53, the suffering servant of the Lord, my servant. So this title servant in Isaiah points to this future importance of the Messiah, his work of atonement, justification, salvation for all his people. And then he's called the branch, the branch. What is a branch? Small little shoot at first. It speaks of humility, it speaks of lowliness, and yet it's used in various ways in the Old Testament. It's kind of interesting. In in Isaiah 11.1, 1, it's called he's called a branch of David. Well, David was a king, so this speaks of his kingship. And here's what's interesting: that's the theme of Matthew. Jesus is the king, but here in Zechariah three eight, it's the servant, my servant, the branch. Well, who in the New Testament presents Jesus as the servant? Well, that's Mark. And then in, you go over to chapter 6 of Zechariah. And in verse 12, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch. The man. Well, who emphasized Jesus' manhood, his humanity. That was Luke. And then in Isaiah 4.2, he's called the branch of Yahweh. That speaks of his deity. Well, we have one gospel left. And John speaks of his deity. And so this term branch speaks of his lowliness in his incarnation and humility, coming as a tender shoot, humble, yet coming and dying for sin, to say, dying for his people's sin in order to save his people from their sin. And then we see the supremacy of the priest' king starting in verse nine. it says, "For behold." Again it says, "For behold. Repeat it again. Here's reasoning, here's thinking. Here's something to pay attention to. He says, On the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of Hosts. Now that's another strange picture, isn't it? Again, this is a vision. What's what's this symbolic of? Well, first of all, the stone is set before Joshua, in front of Joshua. Who's in front of Joshua here as well? Well, the angel of the Lord is. So this is a picture really of the angel of the Lord, the Lord Jesus, who is represented as a stone or one of its synonyms throughout the scripture. Remember, he's called the stone of stumbling, the rock of offense. He's called a stone of refuge. In Daniel 2, he's called a stone cut without hands. In the New Testament, he's the chief cornerstone. He's the stone. It's set before you, set before you to be with you. That means the people are going to be made the dwelling places of the Messiah, just like it said back in chapter 2, verse 10. But it has a single stone with seven eyes. Seven eyes. Why seven eyes? Well, seven's is the number of perfection, and eyes speak of knowledge and wisdom and This speaks of God's omniscience. God sees all and knows all. By the way, in in chapter 4, verse 10, it talks about uh, the eyes, these seven are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. And earlier in that chapter, he had reminded him, it's not by might nor by power, it's by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So this working of the Messiah with the seven eyes representing the seven spirits of God. It it speaks really of the sevenfold, the fullness of the ministry of the Spirit, even as it's represented there in Isaiah 11, 1 and 2. And even in Revelation 5, 6, it says the seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God. And that just speaks of the fullness of the Spirit of God upon our great high priest, King Messiah. He is the ultimate and unequaled great high priest. But notice what it says about this. He says, On a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. An inscription. Why an inscription? And by the way, even though it's not in the ESV, uh, it should have the word behold. Behold. Uh, it's missing in some versions. It's in the King James. It's in the New American Standard. It's in the Amplified. Behold again. God, God, the angel keeps saying, Behold this, behold this, behold this. I'm going to engrave an inscription. Now, do you remember back in Israel's history? The high priest had engraved stones that he carried with him. Had the names of the 12 tribes because he was representing them and he was mediating for them. Well, we have a mediator for us, the one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, and he has engraved upon him the names of his elect. We are his. We belong to him. He carries us, and it reminds us of the certainty of our salvation. For whom he did foreknow, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, And whom he predestined, he called. Whom he called, he justified. Whom he justified, he glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us, right? Praise be to God. And he says, I'm going to remove the iniquity of this land in one day. Remove, complete elimination. Iniquity, all their guilt, all their transgressions, the consequence of their sin. I mean, he cleansed Joshua up in verse 4. Now even the whole land is going to be cleansed. And we need to remember what it says here where he says, I will do this. And then he says, I will do this. Who's doing this? God is. This is a work of God. This is not a work of man. This is totally a work of God. And so it says, in one day, in a single day, a special day is coming. By the way, if you've been reading through Zechariah, You'll see in the last few chapters, it just keeps saying, on that day, on that day. It's a big day coming. There's a big day coming. Now, there was a big day. It was the day Christ died for our sins. That was a wonderful day. But there's a big day coming when Jesus returns. It'll be a single day. It'll be the greatest single day in Israel's history. And so this passage is telling us that Jesus Christ is the servant of the Lord who Perfectly fulfills God's promises. He's the branch who humbled himself to come and suffer and die for our sin. And He's the stone who mediates for His people. And we are His dwelling place. Well, we come to the last verse. It adds, In that day again. In that day. In that day. What's happening? A day of great success. This is going to be the day that Israel repents believes and is forgiven and says in that day declares the Lord of hosts every one of you are going to invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree now that's a picture a picture of peace and prosperity that the Lord is going to bring when he returns when Israel looks upon him whom they have pierced They acknowledge their sinfulness and are saved. It's going to be a time of peace. They're going to be sitting under their vine, the fig tree. That was the picture in the time of Solomon in 1 Kings 4, 24 and 25. That's that's the dream of people all sitting under my vine and fig tree. Perfect peace and rest. No war, no nothing. no, No conflicts, no troubles. That's coming. It speaks of the abundance and blessing of the Messiah's kingdom that is coming. Well, what do we learn from all of this? Well, a reminder again from last week. If we are God's children, and we are, if we've trusted in Christ to save us from our sin, then there's a way that we're supposed to be walking. A way we're supposed to be living our lives. And so we need to ask ourselves the question, are we walking in God's ways? Is our life a worthy walk before the Lord? It's the way of sanctification, it's the way of holiness. Do we daily desire to be pure and holy before the Lord? All of our actions, all of our thoughts, all of our words, all of our attitudes. We need to regularly spend time with the Lord and say, Lord, Show me where I have fallen short. Show me so I can repent. Show me so I can confess my sin. I need that every day. But then are we fulfilling our responsibilities? What are your responsibilities? Well, you have a lot of responsibilities. Are you a Christian? You have responsibilities as a Christian. Are you a parent? You have responsibility as a parent. Are you a husband or wife? You have a responsibility to one another. Are you... Do you have siblings? Do you have responsibilities to them? Do you have neighbors? Do you have co-workers? Who do you have around you in your life? You have responsibilities toward other people. And it's all related to that worthy walk. How are we doing? Are we walking with the Lord? Are we walk in the light of his countenance? Are we seeking and serving him with all of our heart? If not, confess your sin. I have to do that every day. And I probably forget a lot of it. But may God help us to be serious minded about these things because the day is coming. The day is coming. Jesus is coming. It says, He who has this hope purifies himself even as he is pure. May God help us to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Thank you for your word today. It's a reminder that even as this was revealed to Joshua, the high priest, so it speaks to our hearts how we're supposed to be living our lives. Father, find us faithful. Help us to be faithful. Strengthen us. Help us to repent and confess our sin every day. We need you every moment. We praise you, Lord. You are so good to us. Thank you, Lord, for your mercies. In Jesus' name, amen.